Hello, fellow ag nerds. Glad you could join me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and I get the pleasure of every week talking to the farmers, the founders, the innovators, the investors, the people shaping the future of agriculture. Big shout out today to two brand new members of the FOA community, Italo Guedes and Sarah Favor. Thank you both for your involvement and your support. If you're listening and you'd like to support this show and join a community of really smart people who are passionate about ag, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. For years now, I have been on a sort of public quest to understand regenerative agriculture. I've wondered kind of where is the line between something that is regenerative and something that is not regenerative or worse, degenerative. Are these claims I'm hearing of more profit with few inputs even credible? And where's the science that backs all this up? And where does ag innovation and technology fit into this model? These are just a few of the questions you've heard on the show if you've been listening a while. I mean, this goes way back to 2017 in episode 44, and it shows up again and again in episodes 64, 109, 135, 182, 199, 216, 222, and 232, just to name a few. Frankly, I'm often left with more questions than answers at the end of these episodes, and not because my guests aren't forthcoming. They really have been, but I think it's just a really complicated topic with a lot of layers, much more complicated than most of the mainstream media headlines would want you to believe. As my guest on today's show will tell you, it's about principles, not just about practices. As regenerative ag has caught on in popularity, there have been plenty of people who have wanted to come onto this podcast and talk to you about their thoughts on regenerative agriculture. But the people that I have gravitated to the most, that I have found most insightful, are the practitioners, the farmers that are actually out there doing this work, and the scientists who are trying to provide the data to separate fact from fiction. On today's show, we have someone who actually is both a farmer and a scientist in Dr. Jonathan Lundgren. Dr. Lundgren is the director of the Dysis Foundation and CEO for Blue Dasher Farm in South Dakota. He received his PhD in entomology from the University of Illinois in 2004 and was a top scientist with USDA ARS for 11 years. His research and education programs focus on assessing ecological risk of pest management strategies and developing long-term solutions for regenerative food systems. Now, this is an episode that might challenge some of your closely held viewpoints on what's possible in modern agriculture. As you probably know, I genuinely enjoy hearing from a diverse mix of viewpoints on this show. Many of you will find these possibilities fascinating, as I did. Some of you might be more skeptical or even cynical about some of the concepts you're about to hear discussed. And that's okay. I mean, just know that Dr. Lundgren is out there, not just as a thought leader, but he's doing the work on a daily basis of a farmer and a scientist collecting the data that lead to some of these bold statements you're about to hear. With that, I'm going to drop you into the conversation where he is talking about the origins of what is now Blue Dasher Farm and the Ecdysis Foundation. I'm a farmer. I'm a beekeeper. I'm an entomologist. I'm also an agroecologist, and so wear a lot of different hats. I worked for USDA as a scientist for around 11 years or so, and decided to use science for something different and to drive some social change into our farming communities. 
And so, yeah, about five years ago, I quit. Um, instead of just being a farmer, a scientist, I decided to try this farming and beekeeping thing, as well as trying to maintain our, our research and try to rethink where science fits within food communities again. And what did your uh, research at USDA mostly focus on? Pest management, um, risk assessment of pesticides, genetically modified crops, things like that. Uh, named one of the top young scientists in the country, received an award from Obama for that. And yeah, but then we started to change the focus, right? And there's always been an, a, a presumption that pests are, are inevitable and that we need to react to those pests. And what ended up happening is that, number one, the reactions to those pests were having a lot of problems elsewhere in the environment. And then also I started to meet farmers who were doing things differently where they didn't have pests and pests were not inevitable. And what they taught me, well, I guess that those farmers didn't know it at the time, but they were the, the forerunners of the regenerative movement. And as an entomologist, as you're meeting these people and they're saying, oh, well, we don't have pest problems because of the way we do things, what was your reaction to that at the time? Well, it was what I always thought could be, but never had really any evidence of it. Um, and so to find these farmers that were leading this charge, it was like, boy, we need to start applying science. And, you know, I mean, instead of <laughs> figuring I was the expert and that I needed to give these guys advice, it was like, wait a minute, I need to start taking advice here and, and start learning what these guys are doing because it's way beyond anything that I've been able to generate on my own. I know we could fill more than one podcast with the answer to this question, but maybe from a high level, we'll start off with and then drill down if we can. But, you know, what were they doing to make it so they didn't have a pest problem they needed to react to in the first place? I think what they were doing is they forgot about pests. <laughs> they started managing their farms for something different. It wasn't about yields. It wasn't about profits for them initially. They changed their focus to soils and preserving soil health. And then they started thinking about life on their farm. And, and instead of eliminating life on their farm, they started looking at how they could make more life on their farm. And when they did this, the pests just stopped being an issue for them. And this gets to one question that I have that is, is, it's a stupid question, but I think it could yield a profound answer, which is, you know, why is biodiversity important on a farm? Right. Well, that's huge because uh, it's not just, you know, biodiversity. You hear this all the time, insect apocalypse, all of these sorts of things. Biodiversity is wonderful, right? Um, we want species out there. Biodiversity is life. But we want life because it does things. It provides ecosystem services. It provides function to your farm. If you don't have it there, all of the things that life does on your farm, you have to replace with a jug. And that costs you money, may cost you a lot more than money in the long run. And for you, like you said, you know, you were in a great job, uh, well-regarded scientist. You've said what caught your curiosity, but... From a practical standpoint, how did you make it work? You know, going from a government uh, structure into saying, I, I need to pursue this even though there isn't a path in front of me. How did you blaze that trail? I was terrified. Every day we were terrified. It wasn't just me. It was my family. It was all, my laboratory staff. 
that came with. Uh, there was no instruction book for what we were trying to do with Blue Dasher Farm and Ecdysis Foundation. There was a vision. How did we do it? Uh, I mean, I can give you like nuts and bolts. I worked my ass off every day for many hours beyond a 40-hour week. Let's put it that way. But much more than that, we stayed true to our mission, which is to to reform agriculture and, and provide scientific infrastructure to the regenerative movement. And we had an amazing support system for us, farmers, beekeepers, ranchers, uh, other stakeholders from all over the planet. I mean, they provided our startup funds through an Indiegogo campaign. It was a crowdfunded effort, which is just crazy, right? We weren't selling a widget here. We weren't selling, you know, a, a new beehive or something like that. We were selling an idea. We were selling an idea that regenerative agriculture could work, does work, and that it should be something that, that becomes the mainstream. Your vision and your mission is inspiring, and that's, I'm sure, what inspired the Indiegogo funds. But, you know, from a practical standpoint, where did you decide where to kind of take the first bite of the elephant, you know, so to speak, in terms of like, where do you start? Because there's so many questions to be answered here. Where did you start? Uh, that's a really challenging one. I'm not sure, you know, we followed our gut. We started local. Uh, we started in corn. Corn is the monolith of agriculture right now. You know, I mean, 5% of the terrestrial land surface of our country is one plant species and that's corn. And you can love it. You can hate it, but you can't deny that that's a really important crop for this country. So we decided to start because we do have limited resources on what we can accomplish, our first step in this process is to validate that regenerative cropping systems works in some of these dominant food systems. So we work in cash grain systems in the uh, Midwest and Upper Great Plains, all up into Canada. We're working in rangeland systems in the southeastern U.S. and in the northern plains. We're working in almonds and vineyards up in California pastured dairy systems in the upper Midwest, in Michigan and California. So if we can turn these, then the rest of the food community starts to come along, right? All of those other systems fall in the line. Yeah, and we can help the most people with minimal resources and efforts. And to define for the audience a little bit here, when you say you're trying to, you know, to determine or figure out a way to make regenerative systems work in all these crops, can you define regenerative systems? You know, what are sort of the the constraints? Or I don't know if constraints is the right word, but the definition of what you mean by regenerative system in this sense. Sure. Um, so regenerative systems are sort of defined by principles and then practices then are used to support those principles. Principles. We've heard a number of these things kind of tossed about, but functionally, I'll, I'll list them out as, number one, probably abandoning synthetic agrochemicals, insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, of chemical fertilizers, things like this. Number two, no-till, never-till, not just no-till, you know, or reduced till. Number three is uh, always have living roots on the ground, uh, never leave bare soil out there. Four is more plant diversity is better than less. And then uh, integrating livestock into cropping systems, I think, are all elements of a successful regenerative farm for different reasons. These are systems that 
I mean, me as a scientist, I didn't like waltz out there and say, this is the regenerative way, all fall in line. What we did is we just characterized what farmers were already doing out there. And so regenerative movement has been farmer-defined, farmer-led all over the country, all over the world at this point. Do you sense the marketers latching onto that and trying to run away with it? Yeah, that's terrifying, right? Um, So we've already seen large agrochemical corporations say they're regenerative. And it's like, no, you know, I mean, there's a room for that, I guess, um, in some ways. But you're going to have to redefine your your mission of (laughs) what you're doing in order to fit into this. I think definition wise, I think regenerative agriculture has become a little bit clearer. um, And there is some science that supports it. The definition is kind of challenging, though, because you're still left with this issue is I just walked onto this farm. Is this one regenerative and this one not regenerative, you know, kind of a thing. And so we just took a stab at that. The paper should be coming out in the next couple of weeks here. We developed sort of, okay, if you're doing these practices and you have this threshold of number of regenerative practices, that's where the sweet spot is in terms of you're getting the regenerative outcomes that define what a regenerative farm is. Higher soil organic matter, soil carbon, greater biodiversity on the farm, better water relationships with the farm, higher profits, higher nutrient density of your food products, these sorts of things. And it was really clear. It was like, wow, you know, I mean, this system that we developed really works and we validated it. So... That's exciting. I think it'll help a lot of people, especially with the new administration kind of coming in. I think there's a lot of talk uh, in D.C. about this kind of thing of what it is and how they can support it. What we ended up seeing is that, you know, if we look at, you know, the number of practices and, and, and that being your staircase we looked at established systems, uh, corn farms, almonds and rangelands across the country. And these were established regenerative conventional farms. They ran a spectrum, right? But what we found is that there wasn't anybody in the middle. You couldn't adopt just a few regenerative practices and be a successful farmer. You either had to choose a path, either go conventional and replace biodiversity with inputs and pay the money, right? Pay it out or go this other route and farm ecologically intensive. And you were equally successful. Well, not equally successful. I think actually you were much more successful as a regenerative farm. You were twice as profitable. You had all of these ecosystem services. It was, it's incredible. With ecosystem services, there's a lot of talk right now of, oh, well, we're going to pay farmers for these ecosystem services, and that's going to incentivize them to do that. Can you talk about how you view, you know, ecosystem services? And I mean, if you want to get into if people are going to pay for them, great. But uh, it seems like you view them maybe a little bit differently than those that are just looking to make a buck from them. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, subsidies are great. Um, I don't think a farm should need a check from the government to keep its doors open. I don't know of many small businesses that do. You know, yes, there's crises that happen. If the place burns to the ground, then yeah, I think that there's there's roles for insurance there. In a regenerative system, the insurance is built right into the resilience of the operation. You have multiple revenue streams. You haven't put all your eggs in one basket so that when, you know, China stops eating soybeans or something, you end up failing, right? 
So I think that regenerative farms need to be economically self-sufficient. I think all farms do, but regenerative need to be especially so. And so if people want to pay for ecosystem services, great, but it should be gravy. It shouldn't be the main meal here. And so I'm a little bit wary of these incentive programs. If they can help remove some of the perceived risks or something of going regenerative, then I think they might serve a purpose. But at the end of the day, dang it, these regenerative systems need to be profitable and they need to be successful without any any government checks. Well, from the regenerative farmers that I've talked to, it seems like it's certainly not a plug and play system. You know, you have to really care about the principles and be able to tweak your system over time to make sure that you are continuing to optimize for those principles. What have been the biggest challenges, you know, since starting Blue Dasher and doing this research of like, you know, the big uh, barriers of just like, we got to figure this piece out to really kind of break through to the next level? Number one, we need to start removing the policies and things like that that are, are inhibiting the adoption of regenerative. So uh, when cover crops first came out, those were viewed as not best practices, right? And so if things did collapse on your farm or there was this huge drought that wiped out everybody, the guys who were cover cropping weren't getting the checks. The guys who were bare soil were getting paid out. And so there was a real perceived risk of, of doing something different. And so, yeah, either removing crop insurance entirely, and I know that's pretty controversial, or making sure that it doesn't inhibit the innovation of our food system. Number two, food safety. Um, We work out in California and and in fruit and vegetable crops around the country. Animal integration is really important for the functioning of that system. And right now, there's a false perception that animal integration is going to lead to foodborne illnesses. And the reality is that foodborne illnesses are caused by a dead system. When you have no microbial diversity and no life on your farm, the only thing that learns how to live there is these foodborne illnesses. And so, yeah, if you have a broken system and introducing animals may be problematic, but if you have a healthy, biologically intensive farm, those animals are actually going to enhance the nutrition and the benefits of the uh, whole operation. So those are a couple of the things that we need to be doing. Um, It's changing your mindset, just like I had to do, oh my gosh, leaving the scientific community and all of those things that I knew and getting back to the principles that should be driving my own life. Farmers need to go through that same process, right? And uh, that's really challenging. And usually it's crisis that breeds innovation And you see that in a lot of these early adopters of regenerative agriculture is that something hit them, some asteroid hit them, and that forced them to change. There's a lot more asteroids hitting us right now. Where do you see that light bulb turning on in the absence of an asteroid? So, I mean, are there situations we can point to and say like, well, there's there's some progress without catastrophe first? Um, no-till is becoming the norm. It should be. It should have been the norm a long time ago. It's becoming much more and more normal. Um, cover crops. I mean, again, I said this earlier, but, uh, you know, five years ago, even, it was crazy to think about putting cover crops out there. 
And now it's in all of the mainstream agricultural publications and stuff. So yeah, farmers are starting to understand that at least two practices are really important. Um, you start to see small grains starting to integrate back into the rotation. That's a huge step. You see cows starting to come out back onto farms and stuff like that. That's also a huge step, too. Yeah, I think that's interesting because it is it is almost uh, like the, the practices come first and then the principles in a lot of cases, not always, but in a lot of cases. And I think that's that's an interesting concept to think about. Yeah, it is. But, and it's really important because we don't want to become what happened with a lot of organic operations, right? What happened is that, I mean, the principles of organic are absolutely wonderful, right? I mean, we're focusing on soil health. It sounds very similar to, to regenerative. But what ended up happening is that the focus became on the practices in order to get to these principles. And those practices ended up becoming subverted in some operation. And so you end up seeing industrialized organic now that's no different than industrialized conventional systems and probably producing the same, if not worse, products. So we have to be very careful with this regenerative movement that we don't focus so much on the trees that we forget the forest, you know. That's one threat, I guess I could say, that I see about carbon credits, where you start standardizing carbon credits and it becomes the goal is more carbon. Okay, you tell me the rules and I'll find a way to get you more carbon. You lose sight of the principles. Yep, I think you're right. Yep, absolutely. We need to be incentivizing those principles as opposed to the outcome. Well, if you wanted to do all this interesting research in your last job, you said, look, I'm, I, I see what's happening here. There's really some stuff here. It needs a lot of research to kind of validate what I'm seeing. Where would you have run into roadblocks if you wanted to do that under the umbrella of the U.S. agricultural research uh, umbrella? So right now, and I'm going to paint with some broad brushes, okay? And, and please understand that I recognize that there's a lot of variability within farms, as well as within the scientific community. But science and agriculture oftentimes is, is focused on making a broken system work, right? The incremental steps to get that next three bushels. And so my research was bent on that same practice, right? And at the same time, I was starting to focus less and less on the farmers and more and more my community became other scientists. And so I was publishing for them, those other scientists. I was trying to attain all of those metrics by which scientists say, okay, you're a good scientist. I was getting graduate students and millions in grants and, and serving on committees and all of that stuff. And you look at that list of all of these positive things for scientists and you're like, how many of these things do farmers care about? And it's like, oh, big fat. Big fat goose egg. And I'm like, boy, these two communities are much different right now. And we're finding this divergence. What needs to happen is we need to start reconnecting science back into the people that they're trying to serve. So uh, there's this regenerative movement. These farmers are doing wonderful things. I know I'm a USDA scientist. Let's change it. And meanwhile, the Beekeepers are coming to me and they're saying, you're the only one that's working on, on risk assessments right now from our perspective. These pesticides are killing our bees. I'm like, oh, the science doesn't support that. You know, it's inconclusive. And then they said, come on out and watch my bees die and tell me how inconclusive it is. And I did. 
and we started asking the questions differently. And sure enough, those pesticides are killing the bees. And I couldn't deny it anymore, right? And our science was strong, but it wasn't about science anymore. It was about connection. It was about relationships. And the data has to be good, but it requires a lot more than data. So we got out, and I quit. And we started something totally different. And um, first step in the process is that the scientists have to become farmers. We need to practice. So we, I run Blue Dasher Farm here. It's an operating regenerative farm. We produce honey. We produce seed. We produce uh, lamb, eggs, chickens. And we have a young orchard starting. But it's a pretty diversified operation. And I've never had to learn so much so quickly. I bet. You know, I, I see that as one, one of the challenges here is sort of like applying science to a, a systems approach. Talk about kind of that challenge. Right. I mean, a lot of, like I said, within the scientific community, we're incrementally advancing, you know, cropping systems by focusing on symptoms, right? Okay, we've got this insect pest or we've got, oh, Roundup resistance. Ooh, we better focus on that one. Everybody working on their own little partitioned silo. And as a result, the implications of one management decision for everything else in the system are often forgotten or overlooked. And what we need is rather to be looking at the full system simultaneously to understand how, how management decisions function. And when you do that, you start to realize, man, this whack-a-mole farming that Dwayne Beck always likes to talk about isn't getting us where we've got to go. I'm just spending out more and more money. And all this new tech just looks so sexy. But at the end of the day, I, I got emptier pockets. And, and I don't know that I've solved the underlying issues on my farm. I just have to buy the next whiz-bang in order to keep myself from the, being in the red. We've talked about technology a couple of times. I know you've said, like, you know, you don't want to just kind of get in this endless cycle of buying the next widget just to try to get three bushels acre. But I know you also said there is a place for technology in this. So maybe can you talk about where you do see a place for technology in regenerative agriculture? Right. I think first off, we need to have the principles have to be adhered to. Right. We have to have a very firm understanding of uh, conservation, soils. And within that framework, there's going to be opportunities to make life easier. And technology is going to be able to do that. The trick is that technology can never replace biology on our farms. When you go that road, it becomes a slippery slope that you do not get off of, okay? And so we need to be thinking about how to apply technologies that enhance biology, not replace it. So technologies that help us to plant, technologies that help us to um, establish or integrate livestock into croplands in ways that you can harvest crops or move those animals more easily. Those are uh, opportunities for technology to really help to enhance a, a farm rather than replace the biology of a farm. And when you say replace a biology, what about like uh, biological inputs where you're introducing new biology that may not naturally be there, but, you know, is a biological solution? You know, what are your thoughts on that? I'm, I'm not a big supporter of that. Do I understand that? Yes, we, we have short and long-term solutions that we have to try to make 
good on here. Yeah, I get that. You've got to get to that goal somehow. And if your farm is damaged, then there has to be some opportunities to enhance that. At the end of the day, plants and animals are powerful tools. And those are the ones that I want to be using on my farm. When you use plants and animals on your farm, the biologicals, the soil microbes, the, all of those things fall into line. And unless you have plants and animals on your farm, then you're pissing in the wind as far as uh, using a lot of these inputs that are supposed to be biological enhancements, right? You have to have the foundation there. Otherwise, you may as well pour it in the toilet. All you're doing is it's a jug of a different color. You mentioned kind of testing the system in various crops. Have you also tested the system in various scales as well? You know, I think some people who maybe are not familiar will say, oh, well, that doesn't scale, right? So can you talk about that a little bit? And that's what really, I mean, your argument right there is what we're trying to overturn, right? Because everybody looks at these amazing farmers that are on YouTube and they're like, oh my God, well, that sounds really good for them. And that might work on their farm, but it's never going to work on my operation. I've got this constraint and that constraint. It's too hot, too dry, too wet, too cold. And what science can do is we can remove the anecdotes. We can test this across different scales, across different regions, growing conditions to see, does it always work? And what we found is that, yeah, there's constraints. There's constraints to conventional systems too, right? But farmers have found ways in all of these different circumstances to make these systems work. And it does work. It works on 10-acre almond orchards. It works on 800-acre almond orchards. It works on, you know, 40-acre cornfields. It works on 1,000-acre cornfields. If you go down to the coffee shop and you're like, all right, am I a successful farmer? What are these guys that, <laughs> that, are, that are sitting down here going to be looking at? Number one, it's like, oh, is your field all clean? And uh, number two is how big are you? I think that's another issue that, uh, you know, I mean, you're successful if you've accumulated more and more land, right? Who's driving the newest trucks? Who built the latest grain bins? What we find, though, is that as people go this regenerative route, what they end up doing is they end up scaling back. They don't have to farm all those marginal pieces of crap ground on their farm. They don't have to drain the wetlands because they're making more money off of the ground that is farmable and is good. And so what we end up seeing is this reversal in that they farm smaller and better rather than bigger and more technology focused. Technology has a place to play here, but knowledge is much more intensive on a regenerative operation. Well, so let's assume that the uh, the policy issues we talked about earlier get worked out with crop insurance and food safety and that sort of thing. Uh, you're working on the science and others working on the science of it. So if we get the science and the policy to where it needs to be, what's the next bottleneck for the growth of the regenerative agriculture movement? Um, well, I think that uh, getting the farmers to understand how positive this is going to be for their operation changes hard. Right. And so uh, how to communicate this into farming communities, how to establish those relationships that are critical for building trust within the farming community so that they understand that they're not out there on their own, that there is a support network for folks that are all over the country right now. 
that's growing and how to get that information out to the farmers. I mean, we've just about saturated the early adopters of this movement, right? The early adopters uh, are gung-ho, they're believers, they're out there doing things. And now we get into the pump of it, right? The middle adopters that are understandably, you know, a little bit skeptical. I didn't have to run a whole lot of studies in order to get the early adopters to take a bite, right? But science and data and support can really aid in this next phase of the of the community shift. I know you mentioned the Indiegogo campaign to get started, but research is not you know cheap. And so, h- how do you sustain this type of research uh, long term? Right. I mean, what we're doing is we're asking the questions here at Blue Dash or, or at, at a Dices Foundation, rather. That's our not five hundred one c three. We're asking the questions that other people are afraid to ask, right? There's no incentive for looking at risk assessments of pesticides. There's no incentive for focusing on the fraction of a percent of the farming community who's innovating everything. That's the trim tab, right? That steers the whole ship towards a regenerative model. And so, you know, I mean, chasing these big competitive grants or or large corporate donations and things like that, that becomes much more challenging. And that's usually what funds a lot of agricultural science. It's primarily like large agribusinesses and stuff. Our business model is a diverse one, right? We preach diversity to the farming community. Well, diversity is also important to us. Education is a big source of funds for us. Donations from farmers, beekeepers, and and people who want to see this thing happen. So foundations have been really important in getting us up and off of the ground. We do have corporate grants or something, If uh, so we'll work with folks like General Mills or Patagonia or something like that. Um, but we have to be very careful about that because our credibility and our integrity are extremely important to us. And we lose our voice if we're not very careful in, in how we approach those kinds of relationships. At the end of the day, I mean, we've, we've been doubling our size every year, and uh, it's just incredible that we're even still around, but it really speaks to the fact that, yeah, this is, this is real. There's something going on right now. I really appreciate your time. I mean, this has been fantastic. Anything else that uh, we, we ought to at least mention here uh, before I let you get on with your busy day? Yeah, um, you know, you know, I really kind of echoes is echoed throughout the interview or whatever is, you know, what's it going to cost me to change? And that's the question that we get asked a lot. You know, this regenerative thing is wonderful, but, you know, I mean, what's it going to cost me? And I think that's the wrong question. I think we need to be asking the question, what's it going to cost you not to change? This is a really important time right now, right? Um the planet's changing. Our food system is undergoing a really important evolutionary event right now. And not all of the farmers are going to be around at the end of this thing. But the ones that are, are the ones who are thinking outside of the box. We're going to help as many people get through this as we can. We're working really hard every day. If people want to learn more, which I'm sure some, you know, people are going to be inspired by this, uh, where's the best place to send them to learn more about uh, your efforts? Um, our efforts go to ecdisis.bio. That's our um, nonprofit. Um, Blue Dasher Farm is another website you could visit. Uh, Facebook, social media, YouTube, uh, Twitter. These things are great mechanisms for learning more about regenerative farms and, and also what we're trying to do. So, Thank you, Jonathan, very much. I really do appreciate this. Yep, thank you for having me. 
little thought-provoking episode there with Dr. Jonathan Lundgren. I found myself wanting to ask a million different questions, all in different directions during that interview. So I know I didn't dive deep enough in any one topic that we discussed, but I hope something in there caught your attention and you can dive deeper into it uh, online. He's got some great resources on his sites. Go check those out if you'd like. I'm always open to hearing your feedback on how we're doing here on the Future of Agriculture podcast. In fact, I revived my weekly email newsletter so far this year and have enjoyed corresponding back and forth with some of you that way. If you'd like to join that list, just go to futureofag.com and just click the email icon there right in the middle of the page. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. We'll be back next week with more stories of ag innovation.